Well, here we are at last. After 35 lessons in the book of Revelation, we have now come to the very last passage. I believe it's been an exciting and fruitful study, and I'm excited to open up the last several verses in Revelation 22 and see what the Lord has for us. Actually, Jesus himself has some final reminders for the church in this passage. So we will see what does he want to leave us with after 22 chapters of information about God's plan for the end of the ages, what lessons, what final reminders does Jesus want to leave us with? That is some of what we will be looking at today in this passage. My name is Jason Dexter, and my goal is to come into God's Word and not just to learn what it says, but to seek how are we going to obey it. How can we take God's Word and put it into our life in everyday practical situations. So it's been exciting to see how we can do that in the book of Revelation. Okay, we're going to go ahead and begin, and we're going to study Revelation 22, 8 through verses 21. Uh, That's the last passage in Revelation, and I will break it into three sections, and we'll look at each section verse by verse. So Revelation 22, verse 8 says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So we see at the end of this book, John wants to call our attention to the fact that he personally saw and witnessed these things. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Throughout John's writings in Scripture, we see that it is very important to him to show that he was an eyewitness to the things he recorded. John lived the longest of any of the disciples, and he saw in his lifetime many false teachers enter the church, people proclaiming strange doctrines and heresies. Therefore, he seeks to establish his credibility and, by extension, the credibility of his writings. In other words, He says, I'm not just making this stuff up. This isn't my own opinion. This isn't my own ideas. It comes from God, and I'm an eyewitness of this. Neither was he relating hearsay, which he had heard from others. He was recording exactly what he had heard and what he had seen as an eyewitness. In the book of John, he writes very similarly at the close in John 21, 24. He says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things we know that his testimony is true. And in his other major letter, 1 John 1, verse 1 and 2, right at the beginning, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was made with the Father and was made manifest to us. So, statements like these remind us that the Bible is trustworthy. And John is saying, this isn't just an opinion. Uh, I didn't hear this from anyone else. I saw these things with my own eyes. I heard them with my own ears. And what I'm relying to you is credible and is accurate. So statements like this remind us that the Bible is trustworthy and can be relied upon. Now, what did John do? He says that when he heard these things, he fell down to worship 
at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. Now, John's actions are a bit surprising here. He certainly should have known better than to worship an angel. But lest we be too hard on John, we should remember we all do many things when we should have known better. And it's a reminder that the saints in the Bible, who we sometimes like to lift up on a pedestal, are humans, like you and me. They were sinners. Sometimes they made wrong decisions. Sometimes they acted irrationally. And we often do the same. Now, the fact that John actually records his mistake of worshiping this angel here and many other Bible writers record theirs as well, is actually strong evidence of the truth of the account. Because if someone was just making this up, if they were just telling a story that they'd made up, then they likely wouldn't include their own errors or weaknesses and sins inside. It's natural if you're telling a lie to try to make yourself look good and to put yourself in the best light. So the fact that the Bible writers often describe their own weaknesses, their own shortcomings to us, reminds us that their account is objective and is accurate. So what can we learn by application here? Well, obviously, you shouldn't worship anyone besides God. Uh, But more specifically, we need to be careful not to be too quick to judge others. We often do the same things we judge others for doing. Let God's grace toward sinners who should know better motivate us to show the same same grace toward others. Look, even John, even Peter, even Paul, they stumbled and they made mistakes. We do as well, and so do our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let us show each other mercy and compassion. And remember that God is so gracious that God forgives us when we fall short. Now notice the angel's response. The angel responds very strongly, you must not do that. This is in response, in contrast with Jesus' response to his disciples. Actually, we can look at that in Matthew 14, 33. Those in the boat worshipped him, that's Jesus, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And Jesus did not reject their worship, but he accepted it. Now the angel rejects and says, You must not do that. Angels are powerful beings to people They would appear terrifying and supernatural. However, the angel says, look, I'm just a fellow servant with you. I'm just a fellow servant with you. This gives us an insight into the mind of angels. They don't consider they are superior to people, but instead they're working with us as servants of the Most High. So, we are reminded, worship God only. Many things, even good things, can distract us from focusing on God. There are many things which could become our focus instead of a means for us to draw close to God. Angels obviously is one, but anything could be like that. Baptism, church, the Bible, Christian friends or fellowship. All of these things are good, but we must not put them up on a pedestal, meaning that they become our focus or they become the end. All of these things are means to an end. Baptism is meant to draw us closer to God. And the church, and the fellowship in the church, and our Christian friends are meant to draw us closer to God. And the Bible is meant to teach us God's ways so that we have a closer relationship with God. These things are not the end goal. They bring us to God. Moving forward in verses 10 through 16. I'll read that first and then we will discuss it. He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. 
Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, this section of scripture is a little bit confusing to figure out who is speaking. Now, in verse 16, the speaker is clearly Jesus. Also in verse 20, he says, I am coming soon. That is clearly Jesus. Uh, Verse 12 is clearly Jesus. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, beginning and the end. So verse 12, 13, 16, and 20 is clearly Jesus. But in verses 8 and 9, we just saw that the speaker is the angel who said that he is a fellow servant with you. Now, at some point, the speaker changes. Now, we want to step back a moment and and remind everyone that the punctuation in the Bible is not actually in the original language. So, we see things like these quotation marks. These quotation marks are not in the original Bible. They were added by the translators according to their best we can say their best guess or their best idea of where they should be. And so where the quotes start and where the quotes end needs to be figured out by the reader or by the translator. Now for this section of scripture, it's a little bit confusing. So different English translations put in different places the quotes throughout this whole section. Now some put quotes around verses verses 14 and 15. Here, blessed are those who wash their robes. Who spoke this? Did the angel speak it? Did Jesus or did the narrator? Now, some English translators believe that this is the narrator. This is back to John speaking this. Others believe that verses 14 and 15 is still Jesus speaking. So, where did the shift take place from the angel who is the messenger to Jesus? Somewhere between verses 9 and and 12. So in verse 9, it was the angel talking. In verse 12, it's Jesus. Uh, It could be that verse 10, when it says, he said to me, maybe Jesus comes in and speaks here, or that the Jesus comes before verse 12. Uh, There's several different theories, but uh, one important rule of biblical interpretation is to use the clear to interpret the unclear. Now, in Matthew 14, 33, Jesus accepts worship. So we can know for sure in verse 9 that it is the angel speaking. Beyond this, we cannot be dogmatic. Uh, Either way, whether it was the angel speaking some of this or Jesus speaking it, it's the same message. And the angel would have been acting as Jesus' messenger to bring his word to us. So what is the application from here? A very simple one. Just remember that punctuation marks and quotations are not used in the original language. They were added by the translators. So that means you need to dig into the scriptures and you can also use more versions. You can even take this passage, look at it in a number of different versions, and that will help you get a broader understanding of the text.
All right, so let's get into what was actually said. In verse 10, it is said, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now Daniel, on the other hand, was commanded to seal up the words of the prophecy. And we see that in Daniel 12, 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So God gave a similar revelation to Daniel, and God told Daniel, seal it up. But for John, he says, do not seal it up. So that one thing reminds us that the time is getting much, much closer. God's plan was several steps farther forward here when he was talking to John than it was back in the Old Testament when he was talking to Daniel. And God wanted the world to know the next steps of his plan. By knowing what is coming, then people can make a wise course of action. So, Let's think about an application. If John is not supposed to seal up the words of the prophecy, and we are almost 2,000 years later, what about us? We should not seal it up either. What is the opposite of sealing it up? It means to let it out, to release it, to share it. We are to take God's word, all of his word, including the prophecy and revelation, and we are to share it to the world. Don't seal it up. Don't remain quiet. Don't remain silent on the Bible, just because people might be offended or don't want to hear. God calls us to share the good news with others. Now, in verse 11, it says, Let the evildoer still do evil. Sorry. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Some take verse 11 as a reference to the period after the final judgment. And if so, that should be taken as a warning to the wicked and a promise to the righteous. That is, that after the final judgment, your eternal state is fixed. If you are wicked and then you are judged by God and you're sentenced to hell, then you will remain wicked. You will remain in that state forever. And likewise, a believer who has been sanctified, who has been redeemed, <coughs> excuse me, who has been saved, then he should he, he will be holy for all of eternity. That means once you're forgiven and once you're in heaven, redeemed as a saved child of God, then you will not rebel against him in heaven one day. And I had someone ask me that recently. He asked, you know, because, well, Adam and Eve sinned at the fall, is it possible that in heaven people will sin again? And this could be a promise that, in fact, you would not sin again once God is, makes you holy and glorifies you there in heaven. Now, it's also possible that this verse is about now and not after the final judgment. So there's two theories about this verse. And if that's the case, it means that the coming judgment is certain. Nothing can change it. Those who are evil, they can ignore all the warnings in this book and continue to do evil, but it won't change God's plan. They should know Jesus will still come. He will come soon. They will be judged, as we see in the next verse. And how about the righteous? How should the righteous respond? How should you respond after hearing this message in Revelation? That is, you need to continue to do what is good. You need to do what is right. So we should not take this verse to mean that God doesn't care if people repent. Other scriptures are clear that this is not the case. Now, Whichever one is correct, as far as these two interpretations go, the application, how do we actually take that truth and apply it to our life, is the same. And at some point, there will be no second chances. 
No turning back. For some, that might occur when they harden their hearts to the point of no return. For others, it might occur at their own death or when Jesus comes again. Either way, you should be quick to repent now and throw yourself upon the mercy of God while you have a chance because today is the day of salvation. Don't wait for some future time. At some point in time, we don't know when, your fate, your eternity will be sealed and there will be no possible change from that point forward. All right, verse 12. Jesus says, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Now, in the very first sentence of this book, John says that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book reveals Jesus as a judge. After millennia of showing patience towards sinners, Jesus will return as a judge. And it says right here, he will bring recompense with him to repay each for what he has done. His wrath will be poured out on the rebellious. He will also return as Savior to rescue, heal, and vindicate his followers. So the lesson is the wicked will not escape justice forever, and neither will the righteous have to suffer forever. Jesus will return and make everything right. Because, verse 13 says, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The title Alpha and Omega is used by the Father in Revelation 1.8, and is used by Jesus two times in Revelation 21.6 and here in 22.13. This title, Alpha and Omega, is only used these three times in Scripture. Now, the title is significant, especially in the context of the book of Revelation. It reminds us that the world is from God and going to God. He has a plan for the world that he created. The world as a whole and every individual in the world will come face to face with the Creator. Now there are many paths one might seek to take in this life, but all of those paths lead to one final meeting with the judge. And then he will decide which one of those two final destinations each is sent to. So some people say, oh, there are many paths in life and everything is good. Just do what you enjoy. And uh, yeah, it's all cool, man. You know, just enjoy your life and, and have fun and, and, you know, do what works for you and, and you'll, you'll make it one day. You know, it'll all be okay. No, all of these paths, many, many paths, they do come to one place first and that is to God's throne and then they diverge all into one of two paths, heaven or hell. So, do you have a good relationship with the judge? And are you ready for that final exam? There are many exams in life, but compared to this final exam, all of the others fade in significance. We need to acknowledge not only are we created by God, but we are going to him one day and we will face him. I hope that each one of you will be ready. Verse 14 says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. We talked about the tree of life in the first part of this chapter. That they may enter the city by the gates. So here it says, those who wash their robes. Who washes the robes? Is it Jesus or is it us? Well, 1 John 1, 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So 
he cleanses us from sin. We cannot find cleansing anywhere else besides him. Only his blood can wash away our sins and make us clean. But this verse shows the role that you have to play in this. We are to wash our robes. Believers are not passive spectators in this process. You are to be an active participant. We are to come to him for that washing and take initiative to ask for it. Now take, for example, a man who lives beside a crystal clear mountain brook. He's wearing filthy clothes. The water is perfectly capable of cleaning all of the dirt off of his clothes. But the man still has to take initiative to approach the water and apply his clothes to it. If he doesn't do so, he can't blame anyone and say, I didn't have a choice or I didn't have a chance. The cleansing was right there. It was freely accessible. Jesus' blood is freely accessible. It is available to anyone who comes to him. And when we come to him, his blood washes us clean. It's not because you are good. It's not because you clean yourself. But you do have a role to come to him and ask for that. So if you continue to carry your burden of sin and shame around, well, that's on you. Jesus sacrificed himself already to pay for it. Forgiveness is freely available if you only come to him and confess. So, is there any sin which you've been carrying around? Any burden that you've been carrying around? Broken relationships? Pride? Selfishness? What is the sin which you have not gotten rid of? Then confess it to him today. It says that outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Those who wash their robes can enter into the city, but the wicked of all shapes and sizes are outside. Now, this doesn't mean that the wicked are also on the new earth, just like right outside the city gate and they're looking at the city, but they can't get in. It's not talking about that. Uh, Revelation 21.8 already shows us they will be in the lake of fire. But this is another way to highlight the fact God's people and his enemies will be separated. There will be two groups, two destinations. His followers are in, the unsaved are out. You're either in Christ or you are not in Christ, meaning you are out. There is no middle. There is no third choice. The narrow road leads to salvation. The broad road leads to destruction. What's the application for us? Those who love sin more than God will find themselves in an eternity without God. Never will they be able to enter into those blessed gates. Now let that thought sink in for a moment. We face many temptations in the world around us. There are many possible pleasures and thrills to seek. But here it says, those who practice falsehood, those who practice sin, They just continue on in their sin. They're pursuing sin, not pursuing God. They'll be outside. Now, that doesn't mean mean if you sin once and fall short, then there's no hope for you. No, God forgives and his grace can cover over this. This isn't talking about the repentant sinner who confesses to God. It's talking about the unrepentant who have no desire to confess or repent of their sins. And instead of pursuing God, they're pursuing the world. And they are outside. That's a very serious and solemn warning. And Revelation contains many warnings such as this, that 
many will not enjoy the blessings that God has in store for his people because they will not repent of their sins. Let us ourselves repent and confess and invite many more others so that they can join us in his kingdom as well. Now, moving forward in verse 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, this statement seems impossible to understand unless the speaker is divine. Now, a root is something that comes before the tree. Before the tree trunk grows, there must be a root. When Jesus says that he is the root of David, it means that he came before David. He established David. He is the ancestor of David. And when it says that, and then it says that he is the descendant of David. So, he comes before David and he's descended from David. Well, in his divine form as 100% God, he existed from the beginning, uh, before the beginning of the world, for all of eternity. He created the world and he created man. And then from man came David. But he's also, as a the son of man, 100% man, he descended from David. Both Mary and Joseph were actually descended from David. And so he got the legal right to the throne through his adopted father, Joseph. And he got his blood relationship to the throne, to David, through Mary. They were both descended from David. And then it says that he is the bright morning star. The same description is given in Revelation 2, verse 28. I will give him the morning star. And the morning star most likely is a reference to Jesus. A morning star is the brightest star at dawn. Uh, actually, in the morning when you wake up early and you look out and there's still a star shining, that is the planet Venus. It's the brightest object in the sky aside from the sun and moon. And it symbolizes hope and guidance. So the morning star can be seen as a promise of a new day, a promise of something better to come. Jesus' life and death and resurrection gives us the hope and promise of all the eternal blessings he has in store for those who are his. When we read through Revelation, then it gives us hope of what is to come. Even though the world around us is dark, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Jesus gives us hope of a better future. Verse 17 says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. The Spirit is making the invitation known. And He's making His plea through the church. It says, The Spirit and the Bride. Who is the Bride? The Bride is the church. God, through the church, calls the world to Himself and says, Come. The invitation to become His follower is given throughout the world. We see this task given to the church in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. This task was entrusted to the disciples and then it was entrusted to the church at large. It wasn't given primarily to angels, it was given to you and to me. It is our job to tell the world, come. This is the very final invitation in scripture. After so many warnings, after so many prophecies, God is still seeking to win the lost over to himself. 
And the book of Revelation shows this struggle, this fight for souls. God trying to win souls into his kingdom and Satan trying to keep souls from coming into God's kingdom. But God doesn't coerce. He doesn't force anyone to accept his message. Instead, he invites them again and again and again. His gracious invitation goes out. Come. Come. It goes out to all nations, tribes, and tongues. Jesus gave the same invitation in his earthly ministry, Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A gentle invitation from a gentle Savior. But it's extremely urgent, and it's getting more urgent day by day. Now know also, all who hear this invitation are supposed to repeat it. It says, let the spirit and the bride say come, and let the one who hears say come. So after you hear, you are then supposed to tell others. You are then supposed to tell others. So when you be become a believer, in Jesus, right away, immediately, you should start sharing with others what he has done for you and invite them to come. And if you do go, then it says, then you will have living water. Water of life without price. But it has to be, it says it's given to the one who's thirsty. Those who come are the ones who are thirsty. They are hungry. They want something more than what this world has to offer. And Jesus says, I can do it. I can fulfill you. I can satisfy you. Through me, you can have contentment on the very deepest level. Have you accepted Jesus' invitation? And if yes, who can you extend that invitation to? In the coming week, who can you go to and say, come? Now consider if there's someone in your life that you need to pass this news on to. What a blessed opportunity if you could lead that person to Jesus. Let us take this message out and tell people, come. Now finally, there are some words of warning here. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Words of warning. We are warned that those who add or take away from the prophecies of this book will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, in the immediate context, this book seems to refer to the book of Revelation, the prophecies that John received here. But we can infer that this warning is also true for other scripture. If it's true for this part of Scripture and Revelation, it's true for the rest as well. God's word should be treated with respect and taken seriously. It's not to be trifled with. False teachers often add to or take away from Scripture. And even sincere believers may use the Bible to proof text their points. All of us are guilty of sometimes reading our own thoughts into the text rather than simply taking out of the text what is there. Those who ignore the warnings and misuse the prophecies will be dealt with very harshly. And it says they will have no part in the blessings described in the book, but will instead receive the judgments. Now, what is the application for us? Very simple. Be a good student of God's word. Don't use it haphazardly. 
Don't seek to use God's word just to prove that you're right or put others in a bad light. Be respectful of it. That includes being respectful of the process of study and exegesis. Don't be afraid to admit that you don't know the answer to something. And don't speculate and add things on your own opinion onto scripture. Let's come back to the very simple process. Let's study the scripture to see what it says and then go to obey it. Finally, Jesus says in verse 20, he says, Surely I am coming soon. One of the most important points in the entire book for us to remember is that Jesus is coming again. He promises it. He says he is going to come soon. Like in the time of Habakkuk, sometimes for us earth dwellers, God's prophecies seem to take ages to come about. So how can we understand this coming soon? Well, there's a helpful verse in Habakkuk 2, 3. Habakkuk is wondering the same thing, and God says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So in the same verse, we see that the vision awaits. So it tarries, some translations say. It seems slow, but then it says it hastens to the end, and it will not lie. It will happen, and it's coming forward to that day. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come without delay. So, is he coming soon or not? Is he coming fast or slow? Well, kind of both. right? It seems slow from our perspective, but nonetheless, he is coming. And that day is already set by God. And history is rushing toward that conclusion. Time sometimes feels a little bit relative. Uh, My children who are excited about their birthday that's coming up, will count down how many days, 10 days left and 7 days left, 6 days left. And to them, it feels like it's so slow to arrive. But then on the day of their birthday, when they're actually celebrating, it seems to go by in a flash. And at the end of the day, they're like, whoa, it's gone already. We have to wait a whole nother year. You probably had the experience of being awake at night with some pain and you couldn't sleep. And the night felt so, so long to you, and yet the morning still came. Jesus didn't forget his promise. He is faithful and he is true, as we learn in Revelation 19. He promised to come again, and he will come again at exactly the right time. Our job is to be ready for that day, to live our life in a holy way to please God, and also to share the good news and disciple others so that they too can be part of his kingdom and ready when he returns. I hope that this study in the book of Revelation was beneficial for you. I myself enjoyed going through this book very much. At the beginning, I thought, wow, this is so daunting. It's so challenging. There's so many ideas. There's so much controversy about the different events in uh, eschatology and the end times. And yet, I think we've seen through the study of this book that although there are disagreements on many of the details, the key messages ring loud and clear with no mistake, and all believers agree on these with unity. And the key message from the book of Revelation is simple. God wins. In the end, God wins. And everyone who is on his team also wins. And Jesus will come again. So our job, join God's team and be ready for Jesus' second coming. I hope that I will see you there in the clouds one day 
together with Jesus. Until then, we will soon have more Bible study videos coming out on other books of the Bible. I would invite you to like and to subscribe and to check out our other Bible study series on the Study and Obey channel. God bless and have a good week.